Oh, welcome to Scripture and Tradition. I'm Father Mitch Packle, and this is a program where we take a look at the sacred Word of God through the lens of our Catholic tradition, going back to the apostles, and that's what we call it, the apostolic tradition, and call the church apostolic when we pray the creed. Now, of course, we'd love to have you be part of the show. During the live broadcast, you can add your question or comment by calling 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are not in North America, that won't work. So outside North America, you can call Country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. You can also send us questions and comments via email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today we are going to continue discussing our Lord's mission to the town of Kfarnahum, or in English we usually say it, Capernaum. Uh, and especially we're going to talk about his exorcism of a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue of Capernaum, plus the subsequent healing of St. Peter's mother-in-law. So let's take a look at that. We are in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 26. And of course, if you want to follow along, you can get my book called Praying the Gospels, Jesus Launches His Public Ministry. It's available at EWTNRC.com, where it is item 52687, 52687. All right. Now, as we continue on in chapter 6 with the second meditation, we read in Mark 1, 23 and following. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. So, this is the text we want to look at first this afternoon. A couple of things. We had heard uh, in the preceding verses that people were amazed at how Christ spoke with authority. He spoke his words on his own authority, not citing anybody else. And this cry by the unclean spirit interrupts that authoritative teaching. And this is exactly what 
the evil spirit wants to do. The evil spirit is from Satan. And you have to remember that Satan, as our Lord teaches in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And if he can't get a lie in there, he will try to interrupt the teaching of the truth. So that's what's going on here. And this man cries out. And the first question that the evil spirit uh, has, and again, I want you to pay close attention to the fact that he uh, uses the word us. And this also happens elsewhere in the, with other spirits. Um, uh, a good uh, example would be in Matthew 12, verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, it wanders through waterous regions looking for a resting place but it finds none. Then it says, I return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it empty, swept in good order. Then it goes and brings along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and live there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So will it be with this evil generation. That the evil spirit is not by itself. Another element of the evil spirit is the kind of bullyism. The evil spirits are always bullies. They try to show, shove their weight around. They try to get a bunch of support, just like classic bullies on the playground. And, you know, the bullies on the playground and in the political life and in the media and the social media, these are also learning from the demonic spirits. That that kind of bullyism is very much something from the forces of darkness. And we also see, by the way, when you take a look at uh, Mary Magdalene, she had seven demons according to Luke chapter 8 verse 2, as well as Mark 16, verse 9. So this idea of multiple demons appears many times, so much so that when he cast the Gerasene demon out, it's a legion of demons. And oftentimes we see that legion of demons show up in a wide variety of political areas. For instance, think of how the Nazis put the state ahead of God, the church, and human dignity. They added to that their own national socialism, where the state would own a lot of the means of production. And then they added to that an evil racism and hatred of their political enemies and a deadly quality against many groups whether it be Jews, gypsies, the homosexuals, uh, political opponents, 
and later on they intended to wipe out the Slavic people and so on. This is the kind of thing that the multiple demonic quality. You see this among people who are pushing drugs today. They're promoting the uh, cult of death, Santa Muerte, holy death they call it. That's their demonic deity and they worship that along with adding poison to drugs, putting fentanyl in all kinds of drugs including marijuana and they are murderous killing their opponents and even people they don't know just to show they can kill. This multiplication of the demonic is something we should be alert to. And the demon's follow-up question is, have you come to destroy us? Now, think back on how the devil tempted Jesus to give him the, all the kingdoms of the world if he would break the first commandment by worshiping Satan. And here we see that, in fact, while they claim to have power over the kingdoms of the world, and there is a lot of demonic control in various worldly forces. The pornography industry has a strong demonic quality including enslavement of boys and girls, men and women, plus the actual pornographic material. All these have a demonic quality, and yet there is a vulnerability. The demons are afraid of God. As a matter of fact, they, um, Jesus is always, always committed to the truth of God. And this is something that they proclaim, and he proclaims as a gift from his father. While the demons know that God exists. Remember what St. James wrote in James chapter 2, verse 19, that the, dem the demons believe, or I'll just quote the verse, you believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. They shudder. They tremble. They're afraid. So this is something we should be alert to because I know of a lot of Christians who are afraid in the present world that the forces of evil are stronger than the forces of good. There are people who are afraid of that. And we should be alert that you know, it is going to be the demons who are afraid of God our Lord. Um, we have to remember that evil is not a positive force on its own. It's the absence of goodness. And that's a very important thing. Um, it, or it's a misuse of the good. Alcohol is a good thing. Drinking, you know, a certain amount of alcohol is not an evil but drunkenness is a serious evil. Food is good and necessary, but gluttony is a sin where you eat too much, especially of unhealthy food. Um, all sin and all evil is actually a diminishment 
of the good. And for instance, uh, as I mentioned before about uh, Nazi Germany, the, the National Socialists uh, had an idea, you know, being, uh, having a good government, a strong government is a good thing. We see in many of our cities that the weakness of the government is increasing crime in many cities. So it's not that a strong government is bad, but it's when it is not at the service of the people, but at the service of the politicians. And having an indulgent government is also bad because it's something that is there to serve the politicians, not the common good. We have to have balance with all of these things. And we have to remember that God is the origin of all good, and that that goodness is stronger than evil. Evil is simply the misuse or the diminution of the good. But it's not as strong as the good, and it's not as strong as God. That's why alcoholics know that they are powerless over alcohol themselves, but they also have to come to the point that God is more powerful than alcohol, and He is the one that gives them the strength. The same thing with any other addiction. If you're addicted to pornography or something, you may not be stronger than pornography, but God is stronger, and He gives the grace to overcome it. And this is something that we see where the demon then, in sort of a psychotic way, says, uh, instead of, you know, you come to destroy us, now he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he calls himself us, and then he calls himself I. You know, he goes back and forth, you know, uh, it's part of the madness of evil. And the demons uh, know that the Holy One of God is able to destroy them. And they speak the truth about Jesus, that He is the Holy One of God, but He silences them. Now, this is a very important thing. We'll see this many times in the Gospel of Mark, especially. First, our Lord does not want the testimony of the demons. He doesn't want testimony to come from them. Um, they, that kind of witness can't be trusted. You can't trust the demonic. Second, it will only be one time in the whole Gospel of Mark that someone will be able to call Jesus the Son of God and not be silenced. And that's going to be the centurion at the cross who says, truly, this one is the Son of God. And the reason that that's important is you cannot really understand who Christ is. You can't get the meaning of Christ as Messiah only from the healings and exorcisms or the multiplication of loaves and fish. Those point to it. But ultimately, you really understand who Jesus Christ is when he's on the cross. That's why immediately after St. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Lord immediately goes to teaching about his coming crucifixion. It is this death on the cross that teaches us who he is and why he came.
So this is something that is key because it is his death on the cross that leads to the ultimate destruction of death and evil. That is where he wins. For instance, even on the cross, when he refuses the wine mixed with myrrh, he refuses that and wins for the alcoholic the grace to say no to the booze or the drugs or the pornography or any other addiction. So that's a very important part of understanding Christ. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the Gospels. So, Here's what I'd like you to, rec to do. I recommend in your prayer. Picture yourself being in that synagogue. You're in synagogue, and you suddenly have this shock as a man starts screeching in the synagogue during the service as Jesus is teaching. And he's a demonic voice yelling at Jesus with an accusatory tone. How do you react? How do you react to that kind of voice? And, you know, how do you react also to the power of Christ's voice to rebuke the spirit, silence the spirit, and expel it? When you see Christ's authority over evil, how do you react to that? And here's something that you need to do. Pay attention to the voices that are screaming out accusations. Uh, recently at Pastor Joel Olstein's church, women who favor the dismemberment of babies in the womb through abortion were in his church taking off his, their clothes and screeching. And think about that man, the Gerasene demoniac who was naked. This is what they are doing. And they're imitating the man who was possessed by a demon in doing that and interrupting the service. And there are other voices in the media that try to silence us, saying, you can't oppose abortion. There's a separation of church and state. You don't have a right to do it. These voices are accusing us like the demon accuses Jesus. How do those reactions to God, those very evil reactions to God, affect you? How do you respond to them? How do you want to respond to those voices in our society? There are people threatening to desecrate the Holy Eucharist, people coming into not only Pastor Olstein's church, but they want to come into Catholic Church. They have gone into St. Uh, Patrick's, and they'll come to others. You watch. It's going to happen. So how do you want to respond to those voices? And then what I recommend is that imagine yourself in that synagogue. Speak to Jesus about the voices of hatred the voices of the rejection of God, the rejection of God's innocent children, the rejection of life, the rejection of innocence. These voices that are in our society and culture. And ask, what does he plan to do for these people and with these people? 
What does he want you to do to cooperate with him in this? What would he ask you to do? And seek his wisdom and peace as you will have, you and I both will have to respond to these voices of evil and demonic voices at that. And so, Conclude that with the prayer that we've been recommending frequently, uh, one recommended by St. Ignatius in the spiritual exercise called the soul of Christ. And it goes, soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Let me never be separated from thee. From the wicked foe, defend me. And at the hour of my death, call me. Admit, bid me come to thee, so that with your angels and saints I may praise thee for all eternity. We're going to take a little break and come back and take a look at our Lord's next great act, namely healing St. Peter's mother-in-law. So please stay with us. I was so taken up with what our Lord is doing, I was jumping ahead to the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Let's first of all take a look at how the congregation in the synagogue reacted to the exorcism. So I was, let me pull the reins up on that horse a bit and get back down here to business in Mark chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Where it says that the people were all amazed and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Okay, so let's take a look at those verses. That's some, those are important verses too. We need to take a look at them. So, first of all, the people in the synagogue, instead of being undone by the demon-possessed man interrupting Christ's authoritative teaching, what now they realize is that the authority to cast demons out is inherently connected with the authority to teach the Word of God. These two go together. And he gives this new teaching about the kingdom of God being at hand. 
and that is enhanced by casting the demon out. Remember, the demons belong to the kingdom of darkness, and Christ's kingdom is driving them out. C.S. Lewis uh, made an interesting connection that this is like the D-Day landing. When Christ comes into uh, Galilee and preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, this is God making a landing in enemy territory. The idea is that the evil spirits do have a lot of sway over the, the culture, but Christ can overcome it, and that's very important. So this power to cast the demon out now shows that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and defeats evil. This is no small issue. So that's one of the things going on. And we'll see uh, something similar coming up in chapter 2 of Mark. And that's when he confirms his authority to forgive the sins of the paralytic by telling him to pick up his mat and walk. So the message of forgiveness of sins and his authority to forgive sins is confirmed by the healing of the paralytic, just as the casting out of the demon confirms Christ's authority to preach the kingdom of God. And at this point, the congregation is amazed. They're amazed by this. Um, you know, in verse 22, they're astonished. Um, but, and, and here, they, they have a follow-up question, what is this? This is a very important question for them. They piece together their own answer. They're trying to figure this all out. And this is a very exciting event in their synagogue. And they try to piece together these statements about a new teaching and authority over unclean spirits. But right now, all this is is a number of dots of information. I've told you many times how as a child I really enjoyed connect the dots kind of puzzles. I always thought those were really fun as a, as a, as a child. and They even are now adult versions. Somebody once sent me uh, of doing that with a little bit more complicated than the others. But you follow the numbers and connect the dots, and then you get the picture. Well, they're, they're trying to see the dots and trying to connect them, but right now they don't have a complete picture of Jesus. What they know about Christ is still partial information. They just see some elements. And their question what is this? What's going on? That question is extremely important. And it will take the rest 
of the gospel to help them figure it out. Now, that's something that's fine. We should look at the whole gospel and constantly take a look at all the component parts because there's a temptation to take one part of the gospel, make it everything. Uh, I mentioned uh, the other week how um, you know some politicians, Nancy Pelosi recently did this on a uh, MSNBC program, uh, where she uh, said, well, I'm a Matthew 25 Christian that I want to feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty and clothe the naked and visit the imprisoned and the sick. And that's all good. God bless her for being that way. God bless her for that. Those are good things. But you can't use that to undo the rest of that passage that whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. And that includes children in the womb. What you want to do to children in the womb or allow others to do, you do to Christ. So you have to include that in your piecing together the gospel. And we need the whole of the gospel, never just parts. So this is why we need to keep reading the rest of the gospel and never take one part out of the context of the whole. So again, what I want you to do, I recommend for your prayer, picture yourself as being one of the other congregants in the synagogue. What would you say to them? Here they are discussing Jesus, discussing what he just did and what this all means. And um, think about this. As they're talking about he just cast the demon out. I I like this teaching he's given about the kingdom of God and all. Uh, But what would your contribution be to a discussion about who Jesus Christ is? And think about uh, the bits of knowledge that you already have what do you focus on? What's, what's the things that you center on to form your opinion of Jesus at this stage of his ministry? How do you, what, what's the key elements for you? Take a look at that. And then consider your whole life today as a Christian. What elements of the gospel uh, presentation of Jesus Form your decision to be a Christian. What is there about Jesus that keeps you committed to him? How do you analyze these things that you know about him? When you think about Jesus, are there elements that still amaze you about him or not? Um, What questions do you still have about him? Sometimes people send in questions, but what are your questions about Jesus? And picture Jesus with you. Picture him in the scene with you, just as he was in the synagogue with the man who was exercised. Talk to him. What would, if you were to talk to Jesus and ask him your questions, What might he say to you? Or might he just sit there with you in silence? What does he have to say to you? 
Tell him what amazes you about him. Tell him what perplexes you about him. Engage in that. And as you continue to read and study the gospel, consider your different questions. What might he say to you about your present level of uh, faith? And, uh, you know, given the present stage of life that you have, what would he say about your faith? And then again, as in the last meditation, conclude with that prayer, the soul of Christ, save me, body of Christ, or soul, uh, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me blood of Christ inebriate me. Ask Jesus more deeply into your life. This is what we're seeking to do in our prayer. All right. Um, I have a question here um, from uh, Linda that is about demon possession. And it says, Father Mitch, what happens when a person suffering from demonic possession, oppression, or vexation dies with demons still attached to their spirit? Do the demons move on to the nearest unprotected victim? Do they lay claim to the deceased soul in some way or something else? Um, I'm concerned about those who die unliberated and potentially the safety of them of those near them at the time of their passing, Linda. Well, you know, Linda, there are a couple of things here to keep in mind. One of them is this. How much did they cooperate? For instance, in the case of demonic possession, the person does not have control of their, um, their will. That's what possession is about. The demon gets control of their will and makes them do things. <coughs> makes them do things that they don't want to do necessarily. And they are not culpable for that. So there's no sin involved. Their own, the only way that the demon has control over them after death is if they committed sin and if they were in the state of sin, which they freely chose to do, but they are not responsible for the things they did at the demand of the evil spirit. Same thing is true with the uh, various other obsessions and vexations. The demon can... Um, you know, give them that kind of focus. But it's uh, something that, you know, it, uh, you know, it is not their fault. They're not responsible. But if there are other sins that they committed that opened them up to it and they were unrepentant, then the demons have a claim on them for eternity. So this is why, you know, we have to have uh, a freedom from sin and from an attachment to sin and ask our Lord to help us to become detached from sin and uh, confess our sins regularly. And even if a person still experiences that kind of uh, demonic oppression, that's not 
anything uh, vicious. There's no sin in that. So, um, and the demon has no control over them. So it's important for such, you know, to encourage such people to at least be forgiven. Um, and because they only would go to hell for the things they freely chose to do in their will. Okay? All right. Now let's go over to Kelly in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Kelly, what can we do for you? Hi. Hi, what's up? What can we do Hi. for you today? Hi, uh, Kelly. I'm going from actually Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, this really bothers me. Um, I always, always ask God for forgiveness of my sins. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, why are we judged after? Why are we judged after what? I always, I always ask for forgiveness for my sins. Yeah. So why are we judged afterwards? After oh, we after we die. I, I don't understand that. Sure, sure, sure. You know, a judge can do a variety of things. A judge can uh, condemn you or exonerate you, right? And when we die, Christ, you know, takes, a, you know, that, that's going to be the nature of it. Because our sins are all matters of our free will. And he will judge us when we die and, and, and say, look, this one trusted me to forgive her sins. Come and enter into the, uh, uh, the kingdom of my heavenly father. This one helped the poor, fed the hungry, whether it be your own children or whether it be strangers. And he'll say, welcome. So it'll be an evaluation not only of trusting the forgiveness that Christ has won for you, but also bringing in you know, a judgment on the good deeds that you've done. And so all of that will be brought to play as you come before him. And that's just part of the process that that kind of evaluation of our lives, that judgment by God, that will be more true than we knew. And a lot of times, especially for a lot of the saints, you always see how humble they are. And when they get judged, it'll be a judgment that surprises them to say, wow, Lord, I, you know, uh, he will speak to them and to the whole of the heavenly court of the holiness and beautiful virtue of the saints. He'll also let the arrogant and pride, prideful know that you know, they messed up. And they may be just as surprised as the saints. So that's why we have a judgment, because it's truer than we can make a judgment of ourselves. Christ knows our hearts better than we do. And that's what he will judge when we go. That's why people go to psychologists, because sometimes it's hard to figure out what's going on in their own lives. And the psychologist helps to clarify it for, for them. Christ will do that at the last judgment as well. 
All right, we'll take a little break, come back with more of your questions and comments and emails, so please stay with us. Welcome back. We have another call. We have Craig in South Dakota. Craig, what can we do for you today? Hello, Father Mitch. I just love your show. Thank you. I have you. a question. Um, you might consider it odd. I was wondering, even though Judas was like so rotten and turned in the Lord and everyone mm -hmm. hates him, is it possible that he may have actually been forgiven? You know, there is always that possibility that at the last moment he may have asked for forgiveness. Yeah. And that's why when I was in grammar school, well before the Vatican Council and well before uh, the movie Jesus Christ Superstar or any of those kind of things, yeah. the sisters said that the church does not decree that Judas is in hell. We don't say that anybody is for sure in hell. We can't do that. That's right. something God will we'll recognize the saints because after they've died and we recognize their holiness of life, and then we see miracles, sometimes phenomenal miracles taking place, then we say, oh yeah, that one's, in, that one's in heaven. But we never say that Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, or Judas Iscariot are all in hell, no matter how heinous their crimes were. We don't know if they truly repented or not. Now, Judas gave no indication of repentance. St. Peter did. St. Peter wept bitterly after he had denied Christ. Whereas yeah. Judas went and hung himself, which is itself another sin. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that doesn't go, you know, and here's one of the things about virtue and sin. You build habits of doing what's good and habits of doing what's bad. You know, if you start getting drunk on a regular basis, it becomes easier to have the next drunk. And the same thing if you get started with, uh, with drugs. And that's true with lots of other sins. Once you give yourself permission to kill somebody, then it's easier to kill others. Uh, you see that with some of the gangs that pick completely random people, and it's part of hazing process. You kill an innocent person. Sometimes they start them off by killing an animal, 
and torturing an animal and then get them to go and kill and torture people. And oh. then after that, it becomes easier. You build habits of sin just like you build habits of virtue. And so as you see a series of sins, it becomes more and more difficult to do what's good. So that's one of the things you have to just pay attention to. But I won't say that Judas is in hell. The church won't say it. Um, God is the only one that can say that and determine it. Yeah, uh, was, neither, and same was, with Jesus Christ superstar. They can't say that he's in heaven. You know, that's, right. you know, that's not the way you go. So um, <laughs> once again, don't listen to Hollywood or Broadway when it comes to theological opinion. Check them out by the gospel rather than by the ratings. Okay? All right, let's now go to an email from Chuck. Oh, this is interesting. Father Pacqua, it was great to hear Archbishop Cordiglione's admonishment of Nancy Pelosi. However, let's somewhat play devil's advocate and propose the following hypothetical. Suppose Ms. Pelosi goes to confession, say on a Saturday, and prior to any public statement by her or subsequent action by her in the House of Representatives, receives communion on Sunday. And the question is raised about her receiving communion. How could the priest or Archbishop Cordillon answer without breaking the seal of confession? Chuck, they can't answer or say. They can't. You know, we can't, you know, say anything about what happened in confession. So that's done uh, in confession. But part of the condition of her uh, repentance, because it's not just her asking forgiveness of, of you know, the, the sin of promoting abortion and now proposing a law up to the, the last minute before uh, exiting the birth canal, you know, that you can still kill the child. Um, you know, that's the most recent law that she helped propose. And that's what pushed Archbishop Cordillon. Um, you know, she has to publicly recant these sinful positions. You can't promote killing. And this was required of other people. I remember back in the 60s, the Archbishop of New Orleans excommunicated some Catholic politicians who were in favor of segregation. They ran on segregation. He excommunicated them. And only when they publicly repented of their sin of promoting racial inequality were they readmitted to communion. So that, that has to be something that's... The, the sin was done in the public. She has to make a public recantation as well as going to confession. Okay? And then we have uh, an email from Bob in Denison, Texas. I know where that is. Dear Father Mitch, when I visited Israel many years ago, we traveled to Bethlehem, among other locations, and the tour guide mentioned that Bethlehem was the city of David as he was born there. This seems reasonable and verifiable according to 1 Samuel 17, 12. However, 2 Samuel 5, 6, and 7 indicates that Jerusalem 
is the city of David. And 1 Kings 2.10 says that David was buried in the city of David. I would think that David would have been buried where he was born, that is Bethlehem, although it also seems likely that he'd been buried in Jerusalem. Also regarding Jerusalem, I've long thought that the temple in Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion. 2 Chronicles 3.1 says that the temple was built upon the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, um, which David purchased from him and built an altar. But this is Mount Moriah, not Zion. Just a little confused here, Bob and Denison. Well, of course you're confused, Bob, because <laughs> there are two things. The Dave, Bethlehem is the city of David because he was born there and his family is from there. But after he conquered the Jebusite city of Jerusalem, because uh, it was still under control of the Canaanites, uh, the Jebusite Canaanites, uh, then it became the city of David. And in fact, there is a hill um, you know, it's built on a ridge. If you've been to Jerusalem, you saw it. It's built on a ridge. Um, and it's called the City of David, in, in fact, uh, even still. And then there's a, a valley. I believe it's called the Valley of the Cheesemakers. And across there is a cave that was discovered. And they think that that may well be the burial place of all the kings of uh, uh, Judah. Okay. So that's, that's why Jerusalem is also the city of David, because he conquered it and ruled both southern Judah and northern Israel from this Jebusite city. It was kind of like Washington, D.C. The District of Columbia doesn't belong to any state. It's its own territory. And therefore, it, it, from there, the whole country looks to it as capital. Um, that's the way Jerusalem was for David. So it's called the city of David. Now, as far as the city of Zion, first of all, Zion in Hebrew is Zion. And apparently that is derived from the word Tziyah, meaning dryness. Because from that southern tip, uh, the southeast tip of Jerusalem, you see it's the end of the green and the beginning of the desert. So it looks over the desert from that point on. But the word Zion, or Zion, has actually moved around so that, yes, the temple is built on Mount Moriah. You see that in uh, uh, Book of Chronicles. But it also gets the name Zion attached to it. And then, just to add to the confusion, the Zion Gate the old city, is over in the southwest corner because after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., August and September 70 A.D., the Christians came back and settled in the southwest corner, which used to be the uh, Essene neighborhood, and because they were there, but Jewish people were not allowed to live in the city. Only the Christians lived there. Uh, at, right after the Roman conquest, um, then that got called Zion. So Zion referred to three of the seven hills of Jerusalem at different times in history. So the name stayed, but it 
sort of switched from one hill to another. And then finally from Lisa, uh, Father Mitch, in Mark 17, there is no Mark 17. Um, uh, I think you might have Matthew uh, 17. Uh, the apostles asked our Lord why they could not drive out the demon. Were the apostles capable of driving out demons or do miracles before Pentecost? Lisa, yes, they were. Christ gave them the authority to preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons. You see that in Matthew chapter 10, when he sent them out on their first mission, that they had the authority to do the things he did and say the things he said, so that he even said, if, uh, what they do to you, they do to me. Uh, it becomes very important. Uh, part of it. So, yes, even before Pentecost, they had the authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And they came back. You see this in Luke's gospel saying, you know, the demons are subject to us. And our Lord had to say, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They're getting a little carried away with their spiritual authority. All right, let's not get carried away with our time limitations. May Almighty God bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, we can present you this program and all of our other programs only because this network is brought to you by you. So please keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too, especially as we start doing more programs from other countries, including presentations from Rome, uh, coming up later this month, and other places. God bless you, and thank you.